this morning I'd like to uh, introduce to you uh, Pastor Doug Swaggerty. It's good to be with you. I managed to get up here about once a year or so, and it's always great to see new faces. And we've been friends with Bryce and Ashley for, gosh, 10 years, something like that. It's been a long time, so it's great to see uh, the fruit of their work here and, and to um, be able to share God's Word with you this morning. When I was listening to Bryce uh, talk about New Year's resolutions, uh, the most innovative one I heard this year was a guy who resolved to uh, refer to his bathroom. He was going to rename it from the John to the Jim, so that every morning he could legitimately get up and say the first thing he does every day is he goes to the gym. You know? So I thought that was kind of clever. Um, I'm going to share with you this morning on the topic of embracing our weakness and share Sarah a story that's very dear to me. And so as we do that, let me, let me just ask God for a word of prayer, or ask for a word of prayer as we enter this and look at this passage in 2 Corinthians 12. Father, thank you today for the opportunity to look at your word and, and to consider the ways in which you work in our lives. And we thank you for your care for us. We thank you that uh, you're not dependent on us in any way, our strength, but rather you work through our weakness. I pray you teach us that lesson today and, and what we uh, have to share with one another. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage this morning is just a few verses that come out of 2 Corinthians 12. And uh, it's in the context of Paul really talking about uh, his own weakness and and the fact that there's this thing Paul talks about, about having a thorn in the flesh, which was, uh, we, we kind of are a mystery as to what exactly that was. And it doesn't really matter. It was just something that, that kind of slowed Paul down a little bit. And it caused him uh, to remember that it wasn't about his own power, but it was about God working through him. And so he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this thorn in the flesh, whether it was some kind of physical ailment or something like that. He says, and each time uh, uh, he pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, Paul says, of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities, for when I am weak, uh, then I am strong. May God bless us as we look at this passage today. I want you to begin, want to begin this morning by asking you the question. I've got this really heavy Bible, and I'm always afraid if I put it on here, this thing's going to sink, you know, so I'll just set it aside for a minute. I want to ask you the question this morning um, if your life were to end today and, uh, and you were uh, to have to account for the most significant thing that you did in your life, what would that be? Um, that's kind of an interesting question to think about. What's the most significant thing that, that you've done in your life? One of the things that I always enjoy watching uh, towards the end of the summer is ESPN's um, coverage of the Little League World Series. You know, and, and this has been going on now for probably 10 or 12 years. So they've turned it into this big production, which is almost like as much time as they get to the real big World Series, you know. And all these teams come from all over the country, and they, and they uh, pick out these stories that they're going to emphasize uh, about the different kids. And, and inevitably, there, there's some boy or some girl even that, that rises to the top. Their story becomes just really, really interesting, and they follow it all the way through. 
and, and then in the final game, someone hits a home run that wins the World Series. And, and I think back to my, old, my own days of playing sports, and I think, wow, what a great, cool thing. But then there's this other thought that immediately follows upon that. And, and it's kind of a thought of, of sadness, because I think to myself, you know, that person, that little kid's life just peaked. <laughs> and he doesn't know. You know. <laughs> Twelve years old, and it's not going to get any better than that, you know. And he just doesn't realize that, that the most significant thing he did uh, is already beyond him at that point. I don't know what, uh, for some people, I think it's really easy to answer that, that question when we look historically at some people. Um, I think of like Winston Churchill, you know, the leader of, of Great Britain during World War II. Uh, the interesting thing about Churchill's life is that he was this politician who was a pretty unsuccessful politician prior to the war. He kind of stumbled into the prime minister job at the beginning of the war. And after the war was over, uh, he lost confidence in the parliament and he was no longer he was no longer prime minister and his life just kind of petered at that point. But during the war, uh, Churchill was the one who galvanized England and galvanized as a result Europe and, and encouraged the US to get involved and, and the course of history in the world was changed because of the significant thing that he did at that point um, in his life. Uh, for me, when I think about the most significant thing that, that I've done in my life, <clears throat> I realized a while back that it could have happened on April 11th, 2012. And I want to tell you about that in a little bit. But uh, before I do, um, I want to talk about this idea of weakness because sometimes it's really hard for us to discern what that most significant thing might be because of this thing <clears throat> that Paul calls weakness and that we have to, we have to deal with. There's a, a fellow by the name of Ray Ortland Jr. who wrote, he's a pastor, and he wrote about this idea of weakness. And here's what he said. He said, our problem is not just weaknesses. In other words, he's saying, when we think of that, that verse, uh, I'm going to boast of my weakness because when I'm weak, I'm strong. We think of particular things we're not good at. We're not good at this, we're not good at that. So we're going to we're, we're going to uh, embrace that because God can show his strength through that. But he says it's more than just these individual things. More profoundly, he says, our problem is weakness. And weakness is not just one more experience alongside all our other experiences. Weakness is the platform on which we have all of our experiences. Weakness is a pervasive presence in all we are and all we do. It will not always be so, but for now it is. And so what I want to talk about here first is what that weakness platform really might look like, what it is uh, for each of us. And there's four things that I wanted to share that, that really point out the reason why we have this weakness platform upon which we live our life. And the first reason is because we can't do it all. Uh, we're weak because we can't do it all. Uh, if there's someone in Scripture that I think about who was kind of the the jack of all trades and he was able to do just a, a wide variety of things and not only do them but do them very well and at a high level of excellence it was King David <coughs> think about the fact that he was the shepherd who took care of sheep and in the process he talks about killing a lion uh, he, he was a, a writer of songs he he composed most of the book of Psalms that we find in the Old Testament so he was a songwriter. He was a he was a guy who was mighty in battle, and when he um, when he was uh, 
kind of ordained to be the king and had to go into exile. And, and for all that time, God was watching over him, but David was doing all these incredible things throughout his whole life, and then, and then eventually he became king of Israel. But what he wanted to do more than anything else, more than write songs, more than, more than rule a country, more than have great wealth, all those things he accomplished, what he wanted more than anything else in his life was to build a temple for God. And if you know the story, you know that uh, God told him at the end of his life when David wanted to do this, he felt like that's, the, that's kind of the ultimate thing I can do with my life is build the temple. And what God said to him is, David, you're not going to build the temple. He said, you've been a man of blood. And what he was referring to there was that his role in the whole thing was to be a, a warrior and a conqueror and one who brought uh, stability to the nation of Israel and brought, brought peace to its borders. But in the process, he'd been a military guy. And, and God wanted someone else who didn't have that background to be the one to build the temple. And it broke David's heart. But what David did, instead of moping about that, is, is he got down into all the details before he died. And at the end of, of, of one of the Old Testament books in Chronicles, it tells, there's a couple of chapters about David going over all of the plans. So what he did is he gathered all the raw materials, the gold, the silver, the wood, everything that was going to be needed to build the temple, because God told him his son Solomon was going to build the temple. So he gathered all the materials, he opened up these you know, work yards where all this stuff was stored. He even uh, went so far as to prescribe how many ounces of silver would be in all the utensils in the temple, how many ounces of gold. He laid out all these plans, and you can see them. You know, in, in our day, it would be a, a, a piece of paper that would be unfurled you know, and kind of rolled out, and when you finish, you roll it up. And, and he just brought all this out, and he told all the people about it, and he encouraged the people to be generous. And he says, I've been generous with everything I have, but I'm not going to be the one to build it. But he said, if I can't build it, I'm going to get it ready for the next person to build. And he rolled those plans up, and he died. And Solomon, one of the first things he did was take those plans, unroll them, and build that great, great temple. But David couldn't do it all. As much as he was this, this great man and, and so accomplished in so many areas, he could not do it all. It reminded me, when I think of that story of a situation with a pastor uh, friend that I know who went into a community that uh, had a lot of needs and he and, and his, his name was Mike uh, Campbell and his, he had an assistant pastor named <coughs> Steve Lanier and, and Mike was an African American fellow, Steve was this older white guy and, and they were in this uh, community that just had a lot of needs and they began to figure out how can we as a church really minister to these needs. They started buying homes and fixing them up and selling them at, at a price that people in the community could really afford so that they could take ownership of their homes. They started doing all kinds of other things that we put under the rubric of community development. And, uh, and they had just all kinds of big dreams about how this church could have an effect on this community and really change that community. The, the ultimate thing that they wanted to do, though, was to start a school because that particular part of the community that they were in uh, was, a, was a place where um, kids just didn't have opportunity. You know, you've heard that, maybe heard the expression that some people are born on third base and they think they hit a triple, you know? Uh, and then there's others that, that are born and before they take their first breath, kind of their destiny is, is established because they're in such poverty and there's just no way out of it. 
And it was that kind of community. And they knew that through education, they could give kids opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have. They wanted to, they wanted to start this Christian school. And so they organized a committee to, to um, figure out what the vision would be, how it would be accomplished. And when they did this study and got it all mapped out, the one thing they realized when they came to the end of the process was, we just don't have the money to make this happen. And so like King David, they just kind of rolled up the plans and they, they put them off to the side and said, we're just gonna keep praying about this and, and seeing what, uh, what will happen down the road. We can't do it all, we can't do it all. And, and that's part of the weakness that we're under. As individuals, we may have certain dreams and aspirations for our life that um, we're just not, not going to be able to uh, accomplish because we can't do it all. I think the second reason that we function out of weakness, the second part of the weakness platform is that we're not in control. We're not in control. We don't control our destiny the way that we wish we could. I, I think, and when I think of uh, people in God's word, the one who always comes to my mind when I think about someone not being in control is the apostle, Peter, who, if you remember, during, during the time of Christ's life, and especially toward the end of Christ's life, uh, Peter was the, the one who was the most outspoken, the most brave. He was the one where, when Jesus would say, you know, you're all going to, in the end, desert me. Peter would say, Lord, they may, but I won't. You know, I'm going to stay with you to the end. And, and Peter had all these grandiose views of himself and what he would do. And as long as he was in control, that was okay. We also know that Peter ended up denying Christ three times the night that Jesus was arrested. And when you think about it, what changed from Peter being the one to say, I will never do that, to being the one who denied Christ three times? And I think it was what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember that story, Jesus was there praying and he asked the apostles to stay awake and pray with him and they, they couldn't do it. And finally the soldiers came and, and Peter, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Peter thought, well, this is the time. He still feels in control. And he says, I'm going to make my stand. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, show the world. And so what did he do? He took out his sword and he cut off the ear of one of the soldiers. The guy's name was Malchus. You know, he cut off Malchus's ear. And, and in, in some ways, I think that for Peter was like a rallying cry. He was basically saying, come on, guys, let's go. We're going to take this world by storm, you know. And remember what Jesus did at that point? He, he reached down into the dirt and he picked up the ear and he, and he put it back on Malchus's head and he healed it. And I think it was at that point that Peter's life <coughs> changed. And all of the things that he thought were true, all of a sudden he realized how wrong he was. And he was sent into this just confusing uh, time for, for the next several hours where he was trying to make sense of what was happening and he just couldn't do it. And so when he thought he was so brave, he ended up denying uh, the Lord to people that were really not people of great significance, not soldiers, not politicians. It was a maid, it was this young servant. And, they, and he kept saying, no, I don't know the guy, I don't know the guy, because he didn't have control anymore of his situation. And we find ourselves also in that role, don't we? Uh, sooner or later, we realize that there's a lot in our lives that some we feel we can control, but most of it we feel we can't. We're really not in control of, of what's going on. And, and uh, that's part of what it means to be weak. I have a friend who um, 
uh, works with our denomination's uh, disaster relief program. Uh, our, our denomination is largely uh, kind of the strength of it, or the most of the people are in the southeast. This guy's name is Arkley Hooten. And isn't that like a southeastern name, Arkley Hooten? You know, uh, you wouldn't expect a guy from you know L.A. to be named Arkley Hooten, but from you know somewhere in the south, yeah, that makes sense. So Arkley, but Arkley's this great guy. I've known Arkley for about a dozen years, and I was really drawn to Arkley just because he he was such a servant. But as I as I followed what Arkley does over the years, I realized here's a guy who is totally committed to what he's doing in life. And he has a job where he has absolutely no control over what he does with his life because he responds to disasters, okay? So that means like when Michael comes through and rips off the top of a church in Panama City, and it's one of our churches just a few months ago, Arkley gets his crew and he heads down to Panama City. And he didn't know the week before where he would be, but then he was in Panama City. And then about a month later after that, when the fires raced through paradise up in Northern California, and a church of ours up in Northern California was leveled, and something like 60 people in that church all lost their homes. All of a sudden, Arkley's dealing with the situation in, in Chico Paradise area. And so at the beginning of the year, he knows I'm working as the head of disaster relief, but he has no control over what that's gonna mean for him the rest of his year. Uh, he's just kind of ceding that over to the Lord. And and, uh, and it's part of the weakness that he functions out of. I, I'm weak, I don't know where I'm gonna be. But all I know is that when I go someplace, uh, God can show up even in, in my weakness. I think the third reason why we, uh, we operate on a weakness platform, uh, as Ray Ortland calls it, is because we're short-sighted. And we don't always realize what is significant sometimes until it's, it's too late. Um, there's a story in, in the Gospels of a young man who came to Jesus and asked him, what do I need to do to obtain eternal life? And we don't know too much about this fellow except that he's called a rich young ruler. So he had wealth and he had power. And he comes to Jesus and says, what do I do to obtain eternal life? And, and Jesus, looking into his particular heart, you know, prescribing particularly for him, so I don't think it's necessarily a universal thing that's for everyone, but he told this young man, he says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. And the man heard those words, and it says that he left in sorrow because he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He was so wedded to his status and to his money and to his position that he couldn't give that up and how short-sighted of course that ends up being we talk often in our culture about um, midlife crisis I was talking with someone about that this week and uh, there's a fellow by the name of Bob Buford who passed away a few years ago but he was a Christian man who wrote a book called halftime and the and the subtitle to halftime was uh, making the move from success to significance and so it's about a guy going through midlife crisis and realizing that he's been successful in some sense, but has what he has done with his life really been all that significant? Uh, one person said that midlife crisis is when you realize that you've climbed to the top of the ladder of success, only to realize that it was leaning against the wrong wall. 
you know. And so it's like, okay, go back down, move the ladder, and now I'm going to climb it this way because I want to move my life from success to significance. And I think that a lot of times we end up in that place because we don't see the big picture. We're kind of short-sighted. There's a fellow that uh, you wouldn't know this name, um, but he's a fellow by the name of Bob McKay. And Bob McKay's story is, is kind of interesting because um, back in uh, the early 1960s, he connected up with a fellow that changed his life. Um, I don't know how many of you know the history of fast foods really well, but, but a lot of the fast food places really started here in Southern California, right? And uh, McDonald's and In-N-Out and Jack in the Box and, and uh, Taco Bell and all those sorts of things started here in Southern California. And there was a man, uh, if you know the history of Taco Bell, uh, you would think that Taco Bell would have been started by someone named Juan or Pablo or you know, someone like that, but it was started by a guy named Glenn. Uh, the guy's name was Glenn Bell, okay? Glenn Bell, uh, in the late, in the early, or kind of the mid-1950s, started a fast, a drive-through, you wouldn't call it fast food then, but a drive-through where he served hamburgers and hot dogs and milkshakes in San Bernardino. And his big thing was hot dogs. And, uh, and that went on for a couple of years and it never really took place, uh, or never really took hold. And he, he, he sold that out and started uh, another business where he also sold hamburgers, but he, but he started selling hard shell tacos. And it's kind of good, I think, that the first place didn't work out because Hot Dog Bell doesn't have the same name <laughs> because I mean, it, it'd be hard to market that. Hot Dog Bell, you know, it doesn't work. Uh, so he started this place and he called it Tacotilla and uh, he was with a few partners and he wanted to expand it, they didn't, so he, he sold himself out and kept moving on until he finally got to the place in the early 1960s where he opened his first business that he called Taco Bell. Taco Bell. So, you know, it's, it's by this guy named Glenn who started Taco Bell. Whenever I tell that story, I say, you know, you'd always expect uh, it to be a, a Spanish name and, and then people will say to me, but, but it's Taco Bell. So then, no, it's not surprising that Glenn started Taco Bell, you know, especially the foodies are like that, you know, and Glenn, and of course, makes perfect sense. Glenn started Taco Bell. Um, but when Glenn started Taco Bell in 1962, one of the things he realized was that all these other places that were being successful had a particular kind of architecture that drew people's eyes to it. So McDonald's had the arches. In and out wasn't as big back then, but it had it still had that arrow, you know, that comes in and goes. And Jack in the Box had Jack in the Box, you know. <laughs> uh, and so Glenn Bell is like, what? I need some kind of distinctive architecture. That's where Bob McKay came into the picture, because Bob was an architect here in Southern California, <laughs> and and Glenn knew Bob, and he hired Bob to come be an architect. And 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 his, you know, his charge to Bob was come up with something distinctive. And so Bob came up with this architecture that, that's become recognizable as the Taco Bell. I mean, it's morphed a little bit over the years, but it's the kind of that, that rounded tiled roof with a bell on it. And you see it from half a mile away and you know it's a Taco Bell. You know, and that's the kind of thing that he wanted. Well, uh, Bob designed that for Glenn and it was so successful and the working relationship was so good that that Glenn says, you know, Bob, you really ought to resign from your architecture and come work for me. And Bob did that. And he became the president of Taco Bell. And Taco Bell took off then in the 60s, and, and finally it sold itself out to, uh, sold, literally sold itself to, uh, I think, Pepsi in the 70s. Sometime. 
And, and all the people who were there from the beginning got extremely wealthy because they had money invested in this venture. And, and Bob was one of those fellows who became really wealthy. And I think it was at that time in Bob's life that, that he thought, you know, okay, I've, I've got the money now. Let's move from success to significance. And, and he said, one of the things I want to do is help other entrepreneurs who have great ideas but don't have a way to make them happen. And so he actually started opening of banks that would give out small business loans to people that, that couldn't qualify for those loans in other venues. And all, all these other kinds of businesses began to take off and he began to become a, a philanthropist with everything that he had done with his life and it just kept growing and growing and growing. And that was, uh, that was how Bob came to the real point where he realized I, I didn't really know and understand how my life could be important, but now I see it. It's there. I'm not going to be short-sighted anymore. I think the fourth thing then uh, that would describe this weakness platform as I see it is that uh, not only we can't do it all, we're not in control, we're short-sighted, but that we're just not rock stars. You know, we're just not rock stars. Uh, and and we, we at some point come to that realization that we're not everything that we, we thought we would be. Remember the story in the Gospels when James and John uh, came to Jesus and in one of the Gospels, it's them coming, and the other one, it's their mom coming. And, and they come with these words, and they say, Jesus, will you do whatever we ask? Have your kids ever done that to you? you know, hey, can I just ask you something, and you tell me right now you're going to do it for me? You know, and you go, okay, what's up? You know? And, and uh, so James and John come to Jesus, and they, and they say, will you just do what we ask? And Jesus says, well, what is it that you want? And they said, when you come in your kingdom, we want to sit on your right and your left hand. They wanted the, the seats of, of prominence. And, and Jesus kind of heaves his sigh and he says, you don't even know what you're asking for. He says, are you willing to go through the suffering that I'm going to go through um, to end up in that, that position? You know, he, he really calls him on that. And, uh, and he ends up by saying, you know, um, it's really not my call. It's, it's God's call. It's the Father's call. And... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not the one who's going to give those, hand out those positions. But the interesting thing is that the dialogue goes on from there, the, the narrative goes on from there, to say that the other disciples were really ticked off. They were ticked off at James and John. And it was like, you know, when you're, when you're with your friends and, you, and you're all getting ready to go somewhere and you head to the car and someone goes, shotgun! You know, and everyone else goes, oh, man. And, uh, you, you know, you never go, hey, Backseat middle, you know, you never, you never sit down. You always go shotgun, and and James and John are like getting the jump on everyone. They're going shotgun, and the other disciples are like, oh man, we blew it, you know, because they're all wanting this place of, of prominence. They all kind of think they're they're rock stars, and uh, we just have to come to the point in our lives where we realize that we're not. That's not who we are. Uh, that's part of being weak. But we're not rock stars. I had a I had a lady that served in my uh, church and was on staff of a church I pastored down in Encinitas uh, for about five years. Her name was Linda Michael, and Linda uh, was a lady who was a little bit older than me. She'd been very successful in the marketplace, and she had uh, uh, just a lot of a lot of abilities, a lot of things she could do. But when she came to work for the church, and she actually started there before I was there, kind of inherited her as a staff person. Um, by the time I got there, she'd already had like two or three positions. And, and the time I was there, she changed positions. And since I left, she, she changed positions. She was always willing 
to do whatever it was that needed to be done. She was a, a real servant in that way. And she wasn't looking for a place of preeminence where she could just ascend to that spot and camp out there and have everyone, you know, kind of be in awe of who she was and all of her abilities. She just was one of those people that said, I'm not a rock star. You know, I'm, I'm weak and I'll do whatever it is that needs to be done for the sake of God. So God's strength, when we realize those things, that we can't do it all, that we're not in control, that we're short-sighted, we're not rock stars, then God's strength can be made perfect in that weakness that we have. So let me go back now to April 11th, 2012, when I said I might have stumbled on the most significant thing I ever did in my life. Um, that particular day, April 11th, was a Wednesday. That year it was the Wednesday after Easter. And I was at this church in Encinitas, and we'd had, I think, probably about 500 people at the church on the weekend before, Good Friday services and Easter services. We were in the middle at that point of, of um, talking with another church about the possibility of merging and become a, becoming a much larger church. That eventually did happen, and that, that church now you know, worships with, I, I think, somewhere around 1,200 people or so. There was a lot of, a lot of significant things that were that were going on, that were on my plate. I was kind of navigating and, and, uh, and the traffic controller of all those sorts of things. And that particular day, uh, that particular time in my life, if you would have said to me, you know, what, what is the most important thing that's going on in your life right now? I could have named probably five or six things that were really crucial that I thought, I would have thought were, this could end up being the most significant thing that I, that I ever do with my life. Uh, that day, though, uh, actually on Monday, April 9th, I got an email. And I got an email from uh, this gal on my staff, Linda Michael, that I was just telling you about. And Linda um, sent me an email that said this. She said, Doug, we have a family friend who has lately been talking about the needs of Americans in the South, specifically Mississippi. He wants to go there and give money to people who could use a helping hand. We have told him that he needs to have a group to help him, but he's distrustful of organizations, including churches. That said, Linda says, do you know a pastor or other person who might be able to work with him to identify needy people in Mississippi? Let me know your thoughts. Thanks so much, Linda. So this is on Monday, it was my day off. I get this email and I'm like, oh man, I got so much to do. And, and there's this guy now who wants to go to Mississippi, you know. And the next morning I go into work and Linda's there and, I, and I says, so tell me a little bit more. And she goes, yeah, he's just getting so frustrated. He's like, he wants to fly to Mississippi and stand on street corner and start handing out $20 bills. And I'm saying, you don't, you don't do that. That's not how you do ministry. That's not how you, you help people. And, and uh, she said, I thought maybe you might know someone. And I said, well, you know, I don't know anyone that comes to mind, but I know someone who would know someone. And I was thinking of my friend Arkley, Arkley Hooten, you know, because when you do disaster work, you're all the time in Mississippi because of the, all, the, all those Gulf states are always getting hurricanes and everything, and, and you're all the time doing ministry down there. So I said, Arkley's got to know some people who have needs in, in Mississippi. So um, that morning on, on Wednesday, the next day, I wrote Arkley and I said, hi, Arkley. I hope you're doing well. I received the email below from Linda Michael, who's our children's director at North Coast. I told her that you were the best person I knew who would have a feel for needy people in Mississippi. I don't know how full your plate is right now, 
But if you have the time to give Linda some input, she would appreciate it. Blessings, Doug. And as I read that email, you know, years later, uh, uh, I, I, was re I pulled it up and I was reading it just a few months ago. And knowing how I write emails, I, I realized what was going through my mind that I didn't say. You know, what I didn't say in that email was like, Arkley, I've got more important things to do. <laughs> can, you, can you take the ball and run with this? Can you give this girl, this lady some input so that I can move on to some of those other things? And I'd really, I, I said she would appreciate it, but I'm really saying to Arkley, I would really appreciate it. You know, this would really be helpful uh, to me. Well, um, Linda writes me back. I copied her on the email. She writes me back five minutes later. She says, thanks so much, Doug. We'll see just how serious my friend is about reaching out and personally helping people. And uh, eight minutes later, I get an email from Arkley. And Arkley says, Doug, I'm copying this to Sherry. And Sherry is my administrative assistant for uh, disaster relief and short-term missions. And she lives in Mississippi. And she will be able to help Linda in her request. And that evening, early in the evening, I get this email from Sherry, who I've never met before. And she says, Doug, I shot an email to Linda and gave her my phone number, as it will probably be best to talk over exactly what the needs are over the phone. And she said her name is, is Sherry. So Sherry and Linda, the next day, they, they call and they start talking with one another and, and things begin to open up. And uh, Sherry's last name, I didn't tell you that, her last name is Lanier. Uh, she was the wife of, of um, the fellow I was telling you about earlier who worked with Mike Campbell, Steve Lanier. And she, Sherry talks with Linda. And then Linda goes in, uh, and, and after hearing everything that, uh, Sherry, after hearing everything that Linda said, goes in to Steve, her husband, that night in their home and says, Steve, I need to tell, talk to you about something, and you better sit down for this one. And she sits him down. And she tells Steve what she's learned uh, about this guy who wants to do something in Mississippi. And they need to get in touch with this guy. And this guy's name is Bob McKay. And before long, after several phone calls, Bob McKay and his wife Megan, who lived up here in Tustin, they hop on a plane and go back to Jackson, Mississippi, where what, what I envision is Mike and Steve pulling out that <laughs> pulling out that roll, you know, that they rolled up and put aside and said, we can't afford this right now, but we'll pray about it, and, and kind of laying it out and telling Bob and Megan, hey, look, at this is what we'd like to do. This is why we want to do it. This is the need that's here. This is where we feel we can be most effective, and Bob and Megan it touches their heart and, and they say, what can we do to make this happen? And they start uh, talking about what it would cost and the realities of that and they said, we, we'll take care of that. And so right away, they're giving like half a million dollars to these people just to get a school up and going, to be able to hire teachers and get an infrastructure going at the church building there where they can actually start this school in the fall of 2000. 14, and they started with um, they started with just a few grades at that point, and by now, five years later, it's it's all the way up through uh, middle school, I believe, 
they've just added as they've gone along. But the more, more incredible thing to me is, is the vision for this school. It's not just a vision to teach academic subjects to kids. It's, it's a vision to raise leaders out of this community, which everyone would say, this is just a dead-end community. Kids here don't have that kind of opportunity. And Bob and Megan says, we want to give that kind of opportunity um, to those kids. And we want to be a, a part of that. And, and we're going to give ourselves um, to that. And, and so they um, had a rule with a school as they started at the church did. You can't discriminate, you know, all these different things that the, the government tells you you can't discriminate about. You know, you can't discriminate over over um, sex, you can't discriminate over, um, you, you know, all, all these other issues of handicaps and so forth. But the one thing they did discriminate on was uh, kind of wealth, if you want to look at it that way. And they basically said that 80% um, of the students that are going to be in part of our school have to come from homes that only have this much money or less. So they really wanted to minister not to wealthy kids, but to these other kids. And the cost of educating a child in that particular community, meaning the cost of the teachers and all the support that would go into that, was going to come to around $12,000 a kid, which isn't a lot if you know much about private school. $12,000 a kid. And Bob and Megan made it possible for these low-income families to enroll their kids and only pay $300 a year. They underwrote the rest of that so that these kids could have that, that start. Um, Bob was one of these kind of guys that um, always was looking for someone else that had a vision that he could, he could get behind, someone else who had figured things out in a way that, that he had. One of his famous sayings was that if I'm the smartest person at the table, I need to find a new table. <laughs> That's a good saying, isn't it? If I'm the smartest, I need to get a new table. Well, Bob uh, passed away about a year and a half ago in September of um, 2017 after a bout with, with cancer. And Steve uh, Lanier came out to do his funeral. They had become, uh, Steve and Sherry had become fast friends with Bob and Megan over the four or five years uh, that they shared together. <coughs> And, and friends, the kicker in all this is that when Bob and Megan first went to Jackson to check out this opportunity, they were not Christians. They were not Christians. They were just people who had this burden to help people in, in Mississippi. So they didn't share the values of what Redeemer was trying to do. But they could buy into the vision. And by buying into that vision, they made that vision happen. And Steve talked about at the funeral, <coughs> He said that um, Bob had told him just in the, in the weeks leading up to his death that of all the things that he had invested in, and he went from you know, creating a bank to give small business loans to entrepreneurs to actually starting a foundation that went over into Africa and, and went into several countries there to help people there. So he'd been involved in a lot of, anthropo um, a, a lot of things where he was trying to help other people. And uh, he said, that the greatest blessing and the best investment he ever made was in this Redeemer School. And, um, and he and Steve kind of talked about what God might do because by that point, 
Steve really believes that Bob had entered into a relationship with, with Christ over those years and, and what God might do through that. And they, they said, it, wouldn't it be great if we saw leaders come out of this school that would change Mississippi? And Bob said almost on his deathbed, yeah, it'd be great if we got a Supreme Court justice out of this, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a great deal if we, if we were able to get that, if that were it, to be able to happen? And Steve said to him, you know, Bob, the two of us might not live long enough to see all that God would do through the school. But Bob uh, simply said, I know, but we can see enough. We can see enough. When, when Bob died, he was so concerned still about this school. Um, a couple of years into the school, around 2016, they, they had to actually start building the school, not just using the church building, but building the school. Bob underwrote all that. Uh, and, and as he continued to give to the general fund. Uh, when he was uh, getting his affairs in order at the end of his life, uh, he set up an endowment for this school that will um, take care of all of its needs. That's how committed he was to this. And, and I mean, you can, you can start imagining the kind of money that we're, we're talking about here. If a million dollars is a really lot of money, this is a really, 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 that he's given to the son. And every time I, I run into Sherry, she comes up and she says to me, let me tell you the latest. And it's one more thing and one more blessing. Let me give you three takeaways from this, friends. One is don't despise the small stuff in your life. I sent an email. That's all I did. And it was really more to get it off my desk than anything else. And, and at that point, my life may have peaked, for all I know. That might be the most significant thing I ever do with my life. It may not be. I don't know. Who knows these things, really? We don't have the ability to connect all the dots of life that we have, that each one of us has. But my encouragement to you is to don't despise the small stuff. Because sometimes just an email like that turns into something really big and really profound that affects all kinds of people. I think the second thing is, is to leave room for God in your life. Leave room for God to work through those small things in your life because you just never know what, what will happen. Um, that's how, it's almost as if um, God is looking for people who will embrace their weakness and say, I don't have to be the rock star here. I just have to be a vessel. And he says, I'll, I'll invest in those people. I'll invest in those churches. I'll invest in those organizations because those are the ones through which I can do great things. But then the final thing I would just say is you've got to get over yourself. <laughs> you've got to get over yourself. If you're going to embrace your weakness and see God work through you, you need to get over yourself. I want to end with a story of a fellow by the name of Dave Rover. I don't know if any of you would be familiar with that name, Dave Rover. Earlier, Ashley asked you to pull your phones out. If you just take your smartphones out right now and, and Google Dave Roar, Rover, I'm serious here, Google Dave Rover, you spell the name R-O-E-V-E-R. -E -E and if you Google Dave Rover, uh, there'll be some articles that will come up, but also some images should come up. And when you look at those images, what you'll see is a man whose face is heavily disfigured. 
And here was the story of, of David Rover. David Rover was, uh, is a Vietnam vet. And when he was in his early 20s, he was in Vietnam on boat control going down one of the rivers. And, and his boat started taking fire. And he could see off on the banks of the river where the fire was, where the shots were coming from. And, and they maneuvered the boat uh, as close as they could safely get to that area. And what Dave Rover did then was he pulled a pin on what's called a phosphorus grenade. And he was going to toss the phosphorus grenade into the hole where the fire was coming from and, and hopefully do away with those enemies. But as he pulled the pin and had it back here, his arm uh, was shot by a sniper fire and the phosphorus grenade exploded in his hand. And phosphorus grenades are unlike regular kinds of grenades, which are just full of nasty things that destroy stuff <coughs> as they spew out. Phosphorus grenades actually burn you. And, and this went into the side of his face and burned a hole in his face immediately. He jumped into the water uh, to try to get relief and realized that that wasn't going to work because it also had gone by that point into his lungs and he couldn't breathe. He, he finally was fished out of the water and put on a stretcher and his body was so hot that before they could get the stretcher from, from where he was to the helicopter, his body burned a hole in the stretcher. And when he tells the story, he pauses at that point and he just says, it wasn't a good day for me. <laughs> it wasn't a good day. Um, he went from there, miraculously, it didn't kill him. And he went from there from one hospital to the next until he finally ended up being brought to, back to America to the Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio where burn victims would come for rehabilitation. And he was in a burn victim ward with other soldiers who had been burned. And it was there that his wife Brenda came and met him uh, for the first time since he had been hit by this phosphorus grenade. Before Brenda came, he had seen other wives who had come into the burn unit and find their husbands and literally take their wedding rings off and toss them on the bed and say, I can't deal with this, and walk out. And Every time he saw that, he said, what's Brenda going to do? Is she going to do the same thing? And when Brenda showed up, um, it was one of those deals where they tell her, you know, here's the fifth bed on the left. She walks down. There's a little chart at the end of the bed. She looked at the person in the fifth bed on the left. And then went back down and looked at the chart to make sure it was her husband because she didn't recognize him. Then she walked up to him and grabbed his hand and looked at the band to make sure was the right guy in the right bed. And I said, Dave Rover. And she turned his face to the good side and gave him a kiss and said, welcome home, Davey. And, and Dave Rover says that the next thing that happened contributed more to his recovery than anything else. The innumerable surgeries he went through to get to where he is today. He says the next thing that happened was life-changing for him because he started crying when she said, welcome home. He started crying. And she said to him, Davey, why are you crying? And he says to her, I'm crying because I can never look good for you again. 
and it was her next words that were life-changing to him. Here's what she said. She said, Davey, you were never that good looking in the first place. <laughs> I love that story. And he's serious. He said it was life-changing for him because he realized the value of, of his wife, how much she loved him, that it didn't depend on how he looked. She wasn't going to plop her ring down on the back, but she was going to stick with it. And I, the reason I love that story even more is because that's really the gospel, isn't it, friends? That so often, when we think about coming to God the first time, or as, as a Christian, coming to God and asking him to, to use our lives, to use our weakness, to be strong through our weakness, whatever it might be, our inclination is to think, we need, uh, we need to clean ourselves up. We need to become worthy of that. We need to have some kind of standing. It's like the guy who won't go to the doctor for his annual physical until he gets in shape. You know? <laughs> it's like, i got to do this. You know, I can't just walk in there. And we approach God some way that time. And God says, you know, I don't love you. I didn't send my son to die for you because you look good and because you had all kinds of talent. You, you're not that hot. You never were that good looking in the first place, is what God says to us. He says, I love you because I want fellowship with you and I want to extend the blessing of that fellowship to you. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the God that we have. One who wants to open his arms to us, to embrace us, to welcome us in, in spite of who we are, and even because of who we are. And then he wants to use us when we don't despise the small stuff, when we get over ourselves, when we leave room for God, God's ready to do amazing things through us. May God work in your life through your weakness um, this year in a way that will surprise you. Maybe the most significant thing you do will happen this year. And be sure to answer your emails too. <laughs> Father, thank you today for your incomparable power which you show to us in Christ, which is, is ours to have because not what we do or what we offer to you but because out of your goodness you've set your heart on us may we may we see may we hear and may, may we even take some steps to understand the kind of love that is that calls us even when we're unlovely to be your friend to be your son to be your daughter we thank you for the freedom that we have in you. May you continue to, to show that to us and use us in spite of ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.